Well, good morning. That, that little map we had up there kind of depicts the Journey to the Cross series, all leading up to Easter. Little snapshots, little highlights along the way we'd like to talk about. And Ryan Wickstrom kicked it off two weeks ago when he looked at the event just prior to Jesus' public ministry when he went into the wilderness for 40 days of temptation. Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted just like you and I are. But whereas Adam failed the temptation, Jesus prevailed. Then last week, Pastor Tyson kind of talked about the leaven of the Pharisees. You know, the leaven, that little bit of yeast can be either good yeast or bad yeast. A little of the poison yeast can spoil the whole loaf. A little bit of untruth, a little bit of false teaching can really mess us up. We need to be alert. Today, we take a little side trip where Jesus goes with three of his disciples, perhaps the closest ones to him, up for a mountaintop experience, the Mount of Transfiguration. You know, when I moved to Colorado about four and a half years ago, it didn't take me too long to uh, add another item to, I think they call it a bucket list. I told my kids, I want to climb a 14er before I'm 70 years of age. <clears throat> and they said they would, they would do that with me. Now, when you're my age, climbing a 14er isn't the easiest thing in the world. But it's kind of a Colorado thing to do, I found out. In reality, there's not much difference than a, maybe a less crowded 13er, but everybody wants to do these uh, 14ers. There's 54 peaks in Colorado that are higher than 14,000 feet. A lot of people try to climb as many of them as they can. Well, I, uh, I was actually advised by some people my age not to do it. It's kind of a respiratory challenge. We older people get very accustomed to oxygen. We like that. And, uh, boy, I tell you what, it gets, uh, it's, the air's pretty thin up there. Have any of you ever done it? How many of you? Oh, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Okay. Well, we did it. I asked my doctor before I went if he thought I could do it. And he said, yeah, you can, just so you don't be a hero. If you get dizzy, if you get nauseous, come down. But we did it. Climbed Grace Peak, 14,272 feet on the Continental Divide. And since then, we've done some lesser mountains, some 13ers. And I have people ask me all the time, why? I mean, why subject yourself to that no breath and, and risk spraining your ankle up there in those boulder fields? Uh, you know, above above Timberline, and why do that? And I don't know that I had to give an answer for that, except to say that I just really wanted to experience our Colorado Rocky Mountains. I mean, thousands of people witness these majestic mountains every day from the valleys or through the windshield of a car. To really experience them, you've got to get out there in them. And sometimes that means you've got to Make it to the top. And so, uh, and at my age, that was a challenge, but we did it. Now, in our Road to the Cross series, we've come to a place where Jesus decided to give some of the disciples this opportunity for this mountaintop experience. It was to be just a temporary experience. Can't stay up there. you got to go back down, back down where the people are. But he needed to show them some things that they could see 
from the mountaintop and was part of the road to the cross. The mountaintop experience will show us that Christ's glory and the cross are related as part of God's plan. It's mentioned in three of the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're going to look at it this morning from Luke's perspective in Luke chapter 9. Before we open the word, let's just ask God to bless the reading of it. Father, I'm just grateful for this opportunity to meet collectively and worship this morning. We thank you for the music that we've heard, the praise songs that went back up to you, the prayers that have gone forth, the offering that's been given. And now, Lord, we ask you to bless our time in the Word. Teach us what you would have us learn this morning. And we just dedicate this time to you in Christ's name. Amen. And before we read the verses in chapter 9 that specifically address the Mount of Transfiguration, I'd like to back up a little bit and read some of the preceding verses so you kind of get the, get the feel for it, set the stage for this, get the context. In this chapter, Luke seems to have a concern about the identity of Jesus. There are several questions about who is Jesus, the identity of Jesus. So let's back up to verse 18 and and see what's going on here. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do crowds say I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say I am? And Peter answered, We're not surprised about that, are we? It would be Peter who speaks. The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So these verses kind of set the stage for the mountaintop experience to follow. And as I mentioned, Luke seems to have this um, question, this concern about the identity of Jesus. It's a central issue here in chapter 9. Jesus asked how the people identify him. And earlier in the chapter, before the verses we read, King Herod had questions about Jesus. Who is this man? You see, Herod had beheaded John the Baptist. And some were saying, well, this is John the Baptist. He's, He's risen. He's come back. So Herod has these questions. And when Jesus asked the disciples a question, they gave him the same answer that Herod had been hearing. But Jesus says, who do you say I am? And that's a good question. It's a good question for our society today. If you ask the people in northeast Denver who Jesus is, What kind of answer will you get? What will you hear? You'll probably hear things like, well, he was a great teacher. 
He was a prophet. He was a philosopher. He was one of many religious leaders. And there's sometimes you hear this implication that, well, Jesus is, was a great man. He was a religious leader. He's one of many paths that lead to the mountaintop. And a lot of times people will respond by saying, well, some say he's this, some say he's that. That's kind of the way the disciples answered it. But Jesus said, who do you say I am? I believe Jesus was inquiring at this time if they, the disciples, had really identified him as the one path that leads to the top. Back in John, in John 14, 6, he had told them this. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He was not one of many ways. He was the way. The exclusiveness of that bothers a lot of people. But the time had come in Luke 9 to see if the disciples got it. And as I said, we're not surprised, are we, that Peter would be the one to speak for the group. He often does. And he got it right. But Peter was probably not thinking of the Christ from the perspective of the road to the cross. Because Jesus goes on to speak of the need to take up a cross. And then he throws in this, this statement, which kind of seems irrelevant at the time, until we get to the next section. He says, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste of death until they see the kingdom of God. So Peter has spoken about Jesus' identity. Jesus has been telling them about his identity. Now it's time for the Father to speak from heaven, to confirm Jesus as the Messiah, as the chosen one. And so we read on, beginning with verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Have you ever wondered why of the twelve, just three went up on the mountain with Jesus? These are the same three that we see in other, other instances in the Gospels that accompanied Jesus in certain events. There's been a number of reasons suggested why just Peter, John, and James went along uh, as representatives of the group. Luke tells us that Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. 
I don't know, maybe he invited all, maybe only those most loyal to him decided to go. I think we see that sometimes uh, in prayer. To pray, I think I'll just stay here. The, uh, the church I pastored in Alaska, we had a Wednesday night prayer service. We invited everybody to come, but very few did. And we see the same thing here. I mean, we have a prayer time between services, and very few people attend. I don't know. Maybe that's the reason. But it could be because that within every large group, there are some subgroups that you're closer to than others. You have a lot of acquaintances. You know people by name. You do things with them. Within that group, there's probably a smaller group, maybe your community group, other people that you do a few more things with. And then probably you have one, two, or three very close friends that you share with intimately, hold you accountable. We need some of those. We don't need too many of them, but we we do need some. Maybe that's what was going on. I don't know. But the interesting thing about these three and this incident, only one gospel writer was along, John, and he didn't write about it. Matthew, or Luke and Mark wrote about it, but they weren't part of the 12. They were not there. Matthew wrote in his gospel, but he wasn't there. The mountaintop experience was a spectacular event, but not very many people were invited to witness it. The three who went didn't write about it, except for one brief uh, mention later on in Peter's Peter's epistle, and we'll, we'll talk about that here as we close, but uh, Jesus simply didn't capitalize on the spectacular. His word was good enough. Well, this mountaintop experience we refer to as the transfiguration of Christ, and that's the uh, term actually used in Matthew and uh, Mark's account of this. To transfigure means to change to another form. Sometimes the word is translated transformed. And that's the word that Paul used in Romans 12 too when he said we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. You know, we now have the mind of Christ. But while they were praying on the mountain, Jesus changed. His appearance became different. He was transformed. His face changed. Matthew says it shone like the sun. His clothes became dazzling white. Mark says intensely white, as no one on earth could possibly bleach them. What caused this transfiguration of our Lord? None other than His divine glory shining through His human form. It was a reminder of the glory that He had before He came to earth as a man. It's a preview of the glory of His future exaltation that we'll see in the kingdom. And when all of this started, the disciples were asleep. Luke says they were heavy with sleep. You know, the Bible gives us several other examples of people who were heavy with sleep, maybe for other reasons than just being physically exhausted. I think sometimes when I'm physically exhausted, I don't sleep as well as I do other times. But uh, in Luke 22, for example, Luke mentioned a, an incident where, the, where Jesus was praying in the garden, and he came back to find the disciples asleep. 
Luke the physician writes that, he said, and when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. Some translations say for grief. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 10, had a great time of sorrow and mourning. And he had, that's when he had this vision of an angel. And it left him in a, in a, a very weak and pale condition. The Bible says that he, was in, he went into a deep sleep. When Jonah went into, uh, was running from God, he went into the hold of a ship where he slept, even through a storm. For whatever reason, the disciples were asleep. They were in a deep sleep, and they woke to find Jesus, quote, in his glory. And two men standing with him, whom Luke has already identified for us as Moses and Elijah. I remember one time I had uh, shoulder surgery, uh, rotator cuff surgery, and I remember the doctor telling me in the operating room, I'm going to slip a little something into your IV, and you probably won't remember much after this point. Well, what I remember was waking up in a different room, in the recovery room, talking to a nurse, and it was kind of like, whoa, I was in and out. Where am I? This is not the room I remembered. I looked at the clock on the wall, and two and a half hours had gone by. Where'd the time go? It was like coming out of the deepest sleep imaginable. The the terms that are used in Luke's gospel kind of indicate maybe that's the way it was with these guys. They kind of woke up, kind of, whoa, where am I? Would you look at that? Look at Jesus, and look, Moses and Elijah. Uh, Can you imagine the shock? By the way, the, the fact that um, Moses and Elijah were identified by them kind of tells us something about heaven, doesn't it? How They knew who these men were, kind of like the Lazarus and the Abraham story. Abraham was identified. We know people there. I had a, a um, I remember doing the graveside service one time of a four-month-old baby that had died. And the mom's main question to me was, Will I recognize my baby when I get to heaven? I think so. Luke says Moses and Elijah spoke with Jesus about his coming death, his departure in Jerusalem. Now, theologians differ as to the spiritual implications of the transfiguration there in the mountain. I think one of the main reasons was um, to address the statement that Jesus made Earlier, in that earlier passage, we read about some will see the kingdom of God. The transfiguration shows us all the essential features of the future millennial kingdom of God. It's a type of the kingdom to come. All the representatives of the kingdom are there. We see Moses, who represents the law. Remember the experience Moses had on the mountain, where he encountered the Lord in all his glory? When Moses came off the mountain, when he had the law tablets in his hand, Exodus 34 says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone. They were afraid to come near him. In our text today, Jesus' face was shining like the sun. 
every time I read about Moses being on the Mount of Transfiguration, this little sideline trip here, but do you remember the account in Deuteronomy where Moses was not allowed to enter, cross the Jordan and enter the Promised Land because of some sin he had been involved with? He couldn't travel with the people into the Promised Land. Guess where he is now? Most scholars think that the Mount of Transfiguration was on Mount Hermon, which is in the tribal area of Manassas in the Promised Land. Moses got to the Promised Land, just not on his timing, on God's timing. Then there's Elijah, perhaps the best-known prophet in the Old Testament. So having Moses and Elijah both present pretty well summarizes the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. We remember Elijah also as the prophet who did not die. He was caught up in a whirlwind to heaven. So think of the symbolism here concerning the future literal millennial kingdom of God. On Sinai, God spoke to Moses from a cloud. Here the voice is from a cloud that envelops them. The glory of God was made visible on Sinai, and Jesus gave evidence of the shining glory here. Jesus' face glowed. Moses' face glowed when he came off the mountain because he'd been in the presence of God. Moses represents Old Testament saints who have died, who will be part of the kingdom of God. Elijah could also represent believers who will not die but will be caught up. We call that the rapture, where believers in the first phase of the return of Christ will be caught up into heaven. All of these groups of people will be represented when Christ sets up his kingdom on earth. Furthermore, Christ is seen here on the mountaintop in his glorified state, as he will be then. Thus the disciples were enjoying a preview of the kingdom of God. No wonder they were awestruck. No wonder they were told in in the other gospels, they were told not to tell anyone about this. Here we're told that they didn't tell anyone. I mean, who would believe it? Well, then we come to Peter's comment. (laughs) Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. You know, my initial reaction was that Peter's just having a mountaintop experience. He He wanted to stay up there. I mean, we all need those every now and then. I remember... I had the privilege of taking a, a new Christian, an 18-year-old young man, one time with, with me on a trip. A group from our church went down to, from Alaska to Seattle to attend a Promise Keepers event in the old kingdom. 60,000 men. Have you ever heard a male chorus of 60,000? And we had praise bands from all over the country. We had Christian speakers from all over the country. I mean, it was a mountaintop experience. And that young man turned to me when it was about over, and he said, can't we just stay here? I don't want to go home. And I knew what he meant. Of course, we have to go home. We have to come off the mountain. That may have been going through Peter's mind. I don't know, you know, this mountaintop experience. But the literal translation says Peter wanted to build booths or dwellings, possible reference to the Jewish festival of booths that the the Jews uh, celebrated, tried to remember their wanderings in the wilderness where they lived in tents. Well, Peter's thinking just wasn't clear. 
to make earthly tents, earthly dwellings for glorified heavenly saints, just not logical. And so Luke adds the phrase, not knowing what he said. And while Peter's blurting this out, a cloud engulfs them, and they hear a voice from heaven. And while in fear and trembling, they hear God say, this is my son, the chosen one, and then catch this, listen to him. And that command to listen to him it ties directly back to some words of Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15, where we're told, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. In other words, Jesus is the one you should listen to. You have much to learn from him. You know, there's something else about this mountaintop experience that I think we should note. There seems to be a pattern in the Bible about mountaintop experiences. Remember when Moses came off the mountain? He'd been up there in the presence of God, his face shone. What did he find when he got down? His people had rebelled. They were worshiping idols again, a golden calf. How depressing. Remember Elijah, his mountaintop experience? There in Mount Carmel, God miraculously defeated the prophets of Baal. Wonderful miracle. Elijah came off the mountain to find Queen Jezebel out to kill him. Elijah fled and went through a time of deep depression. What happened to Jesus when he came off the mountain? It was to finish the road to the cross, a time of suffering, a time of death. Yes, we need mountaintop experiences, but don't expect them to be followed by health, wealth, and prosperity. Before he took his disciples up on the mountain, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. It's not necessarily going to be easy. I think maybe knowing that pattern can help us. We can better prepare for what might follow helps us get off the mountain. Transformation of Christ on the mountain played a very significant role in the unfolding of God's plan and purpose for Jesus. The disciples, and hence us, better listened to him. Peter had a little different plan, we'll see later on. He, he was caught up in the moment. He spoke inappropriately, although perhaps understandably. Peter would actually try to prevent Jesus from going to Jerusalem. And while Peter's blurting this out, a cloud surrounded all of them and the voice of God was heard. We don't have any more record of Peter having said anything. So what are some insights from the transfiguration for our awareness today? Well, first, I think it it definitely confirmed that Jesus was the Messiah. God the Father speaks, and he refers to Jesus as my son, the chosen one. What Peter had said eight days earlier was confirmed by none other than God the Father. It clarified for all that Jesus was not Elijah, not John the Baptist, not some great prophet. Moses and Elijah were the prophets that were most closely associated with the coming kingdom, but also the ones whose identity was often confused with with Jesus. The record has been set straight. I think many of us have become aware of different worldviews 
including different ideas held by people who don't subscribe to a Christian theistic uh, viewpoint. Many postmoderns, millennials, New Agers will tell you that, yeah, Jesus was a great man, even a prophet, a teacher. But to say that he was God, ah, that's going a little too far. But notice the Father's carefully chosen words. This is my son, the chosen one. That's the final and dramatic identification of Jesus as Messiah. Jesus is Israel's king. Jesus has said so. Peter has said so. And now God says so. What part of this don't we understand? Listen to him. Transfiguration speaks of the hope of the second coming. Peter will later have two letters, two epistles, that become part of our canon of Scripture. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, he speaks of the second coming of our Lord. And here he makes reference to what he witnessed on the mountaintop. Peter wanted his readers to look beyond the first coming to the time when Jesus will return with the same honor and glory that he, Peter, was privileged to see up there on the mountain. This is what he says in 2 Peter 1, beginning with verse 16. For we did not cleverly follow, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And then he goes on to say, you'll do well to pay attention to him. What was it God said on the mountain? Listen to him. Secondly, the transfiguration clearly pictured the literal kingdom of which the Old Testament spoke, of which our Lord spoke for which Israel was eagerly waiting. There is a literal kingdom of God coming to earth. The transfiguration stands as a type of the glory to come, something for us to look forward to. Thirdly, the transfiguration demonstrates that the glory and the cross are related as part of God's plan. Notice the center of conversation among Elijah Moses and Jesus there on the mountain. They were speaking of his coming crucifixion in Jerusalem. Peter in particular will have a hard time linking the cross with a crown. He will try to prevent Jesus from going to Jerusalem. But here is verification that God's plan for the salvation and ultimate glorification of humankind is tied first to the cross. And then finally... The transfiguration was a testimony to the fact that God is able to raise men from the dead to possess the kingdom. Jesus had taught the disciples, as we saw in those early verses, that whoever loses his life for his sake will gain it. Well, here's the evidence. The presence of two Old Testament saints who've been gone for more than six centuries are seen alive and talking with Jesus. Death doesn't prevent a believer from participating in the kingdom to come. So let's focus on some next steps. I think the message is very clear for us. 
This is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. This is the Lord in his glory, as will be seen in the kingdom. Pay attention. Listen up. Don't get caught up in modern thinking that questions his deity. This is what false religions teach. This is that leaven of the Pharisees that Tyson talked about last week. We see in the transfiguration that there's life after death with the Lord and his saints. We see that the way of salvation involves a cross, that Jesus was to die on the cross as part of God's plan for the redemption of mankind. And it's discussed here by Moses and Elijah with our Lord. This helps us prepare for coming off the mountain, knowing what might follow. If Jesus is the Messiah, and if he died for our sins, then a response is needed from us. The Father said this is the chosen one, and our response must be to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Don't rely on your own good works to get you up to the top of the mountain. Don't rely on your own good works to to to, to get you to this picture of what we had previewed for us in the mountain. He is the way. Listen to him.